the summer, love is. We are working through 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. And today we get to the phrase, it does not envy. We are entering into the series with two goals, and we'll share those goals every week of the series. The first goal is we want to have a greater depth and understanding of God's love for us. That what I see often is the biggest absence that we try and compensate for in life is an absence of love. When there's an absence of love, we will do foolish things and run in foolish directions. But when people have found that unconditional love of Jesus Christ, it has expanded the way that people see life. It has prompted and been the start of a journey of discovery of God's love and a transformation and growth process in their lives. So we want to discover at greater depth the love that God has for each of us. Our second goal in this series is we want our capacity to love others to be increasing. We want to reach the end of this summer series and say, I can love people with now greater ability and greater capacity than I did the first week of the series all the way back in June. That our goal is to have a greater heart for people, to break down some of the hardness of heart that may be there so we can have a greater capacity to love others. Well, last week... I began with a question at the beginning of the sermon. And the question was, is one of them was, do I have to love everybody? And I said that the answer to this question may surprise you. And I know that there's some that are hoping like, oh, maybe I don't have to love everybody because I have a list of people that I'd rather not love. And so let me answer the question this way of, do I have to love everybody? And first saying that no one other than God has the capacity or the reach or the infinite nature to love everybody all at once with the kind of power that God has, with the ability that God has. God has the ability constantly throughout all of time to reach into all parts of the world and every human heart and love them with an availability and a freedom and a weight that we just do not have. We don't have that reach. Now, it does not mean that we are not to be concerned about our neighbors and does not mean that we don't do our best to make sure that those that we don't know are provided for in this world. We always want to do that. But we don't need to find a way to love everybody. Only God's capable of doing that. But we are called to love the somebodies that we are in contact with every day. If oftentimes I think we say to ourselves, well, if I like this on Facebook, then that's me being a good person and sending love beyond who I can love face to face. Or I send a check to somewhere overseas. Well, it's a way that I can send love without doing it face to face. And we'll say, well, if I can be good by sending love with a like or good by sending love with a check, then it kind of means that I can still kind of treat those around me the way that I want to treat them with a harshness. Practically, we cannot love everybody, but scripturally, we are called to love the somebodies that we come into contact with every day. And so practically, if we're going to make this move to increase the capacity of our love, we need to love now people that maybe have been hard for us to love. And so the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is, and to do this, we need to start identifying those people. 
And so the first thing would be is to identify someone in your life that's a hard-to-love person. And it could be a coworker, could be a family member, could be someone here at church. Chances are you know the reason that they're hard to love. And as long as that person is safe to be around and has not required other boundaries because they are so toxic, then it's probably fine. Think of this hard-to-love person, a person that grates on you, frustrates you. And then you must ask yourself this question. Is this a person that I am willing to love? Do I want to learn how to love this person? And if the answer is no, then you can skip the next two minutes of the message and come back in a little bit. But if the answer is yes, then you can start to ask God to help you answer some of these questions. Now, the first thing to do is to say, God, show me something good inside this person. What is good about them that I am missing? What qualities have you given this person that I can celebrate that in my frustration with them I am missing or I am not seeing? We have to start to see the goodness that God has built into these people, to this person. Second thing you can ask is, is there something that you can do for this person, something practically Something that you've hesitated, and it may be something physical, it may be a gift, it may just be an encouraging word, it may just be to kind of to, um, to come closer to them in some way. Is there something practically you can do for that person? And then the next question would be is, how can I pray for them? Because when we begin to pray for someone and pray God's blessing on their life, it becomes more difficult to dislike them. When we ask God to start doing good things in their life or ask God to help them grow in their faith, we start to actually get on board with the things that we are praying about. And so the best way to get over your dislike of a person is to pray for them and ask God, show them where you can help. That's really the path to loving somebody that you've been incapable of loving to this day. In some way, it's so simple But it does require something of us. It requires sacrifice. It requires us to put ourselves out there. So Paul is describing love as patient and then love as kind. And today we get to that very simple line, love does not envy. One of the more famous stories about envy took place in a poem. And a man writes this poem about, um, the poem is written about a man who's offered a deal. And the deal that the man has offered is that I'll give you anything in this world that you desire, but the person that you envy will get twice as much. And so if the man said, well, I want a million dollars, then the person that he envied would get two million dollars. If the man said, well, I want to be much better looking, then the person who he envied would be twice as much better looking as he would become. And so he makes this offer and the man starts to figure out what to ask for. Do I ask for money, possessions, charisma, a better body? And finally, he answers with this line. He says, I want to be blind in one eye. That's what he said. A dark answer. And my first thought is, wow, that's some ugly stuff that's happening inside a person. And my second thought is, oh, I'm, or, and my second thought is, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that. Until you begin to break down the story and see some of the dynamics that are in place in that very simple poem.
The first dynamic that we see at place in that poem is that we see the man playing the comparison game. And he's playing the comparison game with someone in his life. He's asking this question, how do I stack up against this person that I see every day? How do I stack up in terms of his qualities and his lifestyle and his personality, his body, his looks? And the person envies those things. And it brings to the forefront the parts of his life that don't measure up. He's playing the comparison game and it shows him what he thinks is lacking in his own life. Second dynamic that we see is that we see the man actively rooting for added difficulties to the person that he envies. There's a sense that he's going to be happier when he sees the person that he envies go through a more difficult time. He's rooting for this person to have a rough go of it in life. He's rooting against him. He's rooting against his rivals in life. There's that dynamic. The third dynamic that we see in this simple poem is that the man in the story envies a person he is close to and being compared to. That we don't tend to envy people that we don't know or are a great distance from us. We tend to envy those closest to us and who we are most likely to be compared to. We tend to envy the people we are closest to and most likely to be compared to. And so, yes, we can maybe envy some big Hollywood star, but chances are that Hollywood star is just a proxy for someone in our lives that we're being compared to or we feel that we're, that we're being compared to who is close to. To us. We tend to envy those who are close to us and who are most and who we are most likely to be compared to and threaten ourself of self or status. It's the people that we see every day that we envy. And so I look at those three things and I say, yeah, maybe I don't envy to the point that I want somebody to go blind, but I certainly play the comparison game. I certainly have rooted for rivals to take hits and go through difficult patches. I've certainly looked at those closest to me and at times had my sense of self threatened because of their gifts and their personality that they have that I may not have. So even when envy is not carried out to the fullest extent, it takes enormous energy out of our lives and creates difficulties in our ability to love other people. James saw this. James, in his book, he uses some pretty harsh language for envy in his book. And I wonder if James realized the destructiveness of envy because he grew up in a house with a perfect brother. You know, he was the brother of Jesus, and Jesus was perfect, and James wasn't perfect. And so no matter what James did, get good grades or hold down a good job or buy his mom the perfect Mother's Day present, he was just never going to be the one to turn water into wine like his brother Jesus. And so James, before he became a follower of Jesus, after the resurrection, I wonder if he just struggled with the sense of envy. And in chapter 3, verse 14 of his book, he says... But if you harbor bitter envy or harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about or deny the truth. If you're harboring those things in your heart, you better come to the truth about what's happening inside you. Such wisdom 
does not come from heaven, but is earthly. The wisdom of envying something in hopes of improving your status, that is not heavenly wisdom. That is worldly wisdom. And it is unspiritual and it is of the devil. He says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. James puts it right out for us. This is a pretty ugly sickness in our world. And for our purposes today, we're going to define envy this way with two parts. And the first part of the way we're going to define envy is this. Is envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's lives. It is looking at other people and seeing what we perceive to be good things in their life, their talents, their athletic ability, their intellectual ability, their musical ability, and are frustrated that God even gave them gifts like that. It could be looking at others and envying their body for the health that they have or for their smile. It could be looking at others and envying their outgoing charisma and personality, and which is what you like about them. It's a little bit different than greed. Greed is the dynamic where you just want more and more and more. In envy, we are envious of the things that we can't attain or buy with more hard work. That's why it usually tends to circle around looks or talents or abilities. Oftentimes we'll envy a personal quality, a talent or a status. Possessions may be part of it, but, would, but it will be more about what the possessions bring a person, not the possessions themselves. Thomas Aquinas says we envy only those whom wish we, we wish to rival or surpass in reputation. And so we look at people's lives and we resent the good things in their lives. We look at it and said, they've got it and I want it and they don't deserve it and they never should have had it in the first place. It's like looking at what they do well or the way God has blessed them and whether they've been responsible with that blessing or not and resenting that God blessed them that way and not you. Second part of envy is this is if we resent God's blessing in other lives, the second part of envy is that we ignore the goodness of God in our own life. Envy is resenting the goodness of God in others' lives, while at the same time ignoring God's goodness in my life. And you find this at play throughout the scriptures, one after another. Genesis 4, 5, the first set of brothers, there was envy. Cain envies his brother Abel and ends up murdering him. We see this with sisters. Rachel envied her sister Leah because Rachel could not have a child. Later on in the story, the envy is reversed and Leah envied Rachel. Joseph's brothers envied Joseph. Because Joseph had dreams and visions and their father's favor. They envied him so much that they beat him up and sold him into slavery. We see envy in the story of David and Saul. Saul just was struggled with envy towards David throughout his whole life. There's one poem where they said that Saul killed thousands and David took and killed tens of thousands. And Saul looked at that poem And he wanted it to be him that had done more and David that had done less. And he envied David because of that reality. Proverbs 14.30 says that a heart at peace, a content heart, content heart with what we've been given, gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. 
And envy will start like a small seed inside us. It actually starts very simply inside us and grows from there. That the first little sign that we'll be envious towards somebody is that we'll begin to feel frustrated at the talents, the successes, or good fortune of another person. Like we'll just have that little bit of frustration towards somebody who experienced something good. Giving a little bit of wonder to why did they have that quality, that gift, that status, and why couldn't I have that? That little seed grows a little bit, and we begin to develop a bit of a rivalry or competition. It's not really a healthy one. It's not reciprocated in any way. But it'll be kind of an under-the-radar way to keep track of whether or not you're keeping up with the person that you envy. That you want that gap between you and that person to be closed just a little bit. And if you can elevate yourself, great. But better if you can bring them down a little bit and close that gap that you're feeling. If that seed grows a little bit more, you'll start to look at their successes and see false motives in their behaviors. You'll look at their success and say, oh, they did well there, but they didn't do it for the right reason. They did it for selfish reasons. Or you'll look at them and see a success and say, well, they didn't do it in the right way. They didn't do it in a way that was appropriate. They didn't do it with a right motivation, even if you have no evidence of that fact. And if envy grows a little bit more from there, It leads to backbiting and just wanting to say bad things about that person, even if they're not true. And if envy grows even more and more from there, it can lead to fostering or organizing others against the one that you envy and attacking them in the places or abilities that you know are better than your own. And I'm sure this takes place in thousands of workplaces around the country takes places in thousands of family where that little bit of frustration with what somebody has that we don't have, all of us sudden grows into fostering and organizing and attacking the ones who have those things. One of the great movies of all time explores the topic of envy, and it's the movie Amadeus. Amadeus is the story of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And in the story, the foil in the story is a man by the name of Salieri. And Salieri is praised for his musical talent as he's growing up. He prays to God that he wants nothing more than to be a great composer and create great music for God. And he accomplished much in his day, but as soon as Mozart comes onto the scene. Mozart with all this great talent, but mixed with a personality in the movie that's brash and harsh and... Not very, um, and not very righteous living. That Mozart's talent destroys Salieri's dream of greatness. And the entire film becomes a study in envy. And at one point towards the end of the movie, Salieri takes down the cross on his wall. He's frustrated with God for giving this unseemly man all this talent. And he takes down the cross and he burns it in a fire. And he vows to destroy God's incarnation inside Mozart. Instead of love, he was now seeking to destroy the goodness of God within that person all because of envy. And we wonder, well, is it a problem in our day? 
I think in our day, we have a breeding ground for envy in our culture. We see it in our academic life. I can remember in high school, some of the smartest kids in our class who were going to go on to great schools cheering when one of their rivals didn't do well on a test or didn't do well in a class. They wanted to close that gap between them and their rival. And if their rival failed, it closed it. I think it happens on sports teams. Imagine your child is on a team and they can never beat their rival. And their rival has the best player in the conference on the team. And every game through all four years of high school, freshman, sophomore, junior year, you've seen your child lose to this other team with the best player on the team. And then finally in the playoffs, you look out and their best player goes down with an injury. And on the outside, you're like, oh, that's a shame. And on the inside, you're kind of like, oh, maybe they have a chance right now. Like you just have that little bit of like, oh, now we can have what we didn't have before. It shows up in the workplace. Maybe a new person arrives at work. And that person is doing great work, and you see that work, and you know that the work is good. And eventually they start giving that person projects that they used to give you, and you see that, yes, that person does do it different, but they are, it is better work. And envy begins to grow at that person's success, and you hope that maybe they'll have a future failure to kind of negate the change in work habits. You'll begin to spend time with people who you also know don't like the new person to try and hurt them. Envy happens in our family life. How many brother and sister's relationships have been torn apart by envy? That one brother and sister has a gift that the other one wanted. One brother and sister has a parent's affection that the other one wanted. One brother and sister is more popular, a better athlete or school, and the other one wanted that, or with music, and a split occurs, and now neither can see the mutual good gifts that God has given either of them. And there becomes a mutual rooting against the success of one another. And you begin to see how ugly envy can be in our lives. And we can see what James means when he says that where there is envy, there'll be disorder and every evil practice. Envy robs us of our energy. Envy keeps us from seeing God's work in another person. Envy drives a wedge between us and a somebody that we are called to love. Where there is envy present, we feel good when somebody fails. Where there is envy present, we feel bad when somebody succeeds. When there is envy present, we don't rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn. But we mourn when somebody else is rejoicing and rejoice when someone else is mourning. So when Paul says that love does not envy, he looks at the love of God has for us and the envy in this world, and he sees them in direct opposition to one another. Envy is opposed to love, for God always wants the good of others, but envy wants to destroy the good things that God has given them. And so we must always be battling against this thing called envy because it'll destroy us. It'll never lift us. And so the scriptures help us do that. And I think the first thing that we need to be able to do is this, is our identity must first and foremost be found in the love of Christ. That envy of others 
is often a sign of discontent with the way that God made us. It's often a sign that we see something lacking in our own lives. It's often a sign that the way we were created, we just don't feel good about. And we see that gap in what our identity is and what we want it to do be a feeling of not measuring up and think that if I can close that gap and bring others down, if I can get that gap a little bit closer, maybe that will allow me to feel good about who I am more so. But the cure for envy is the self-worth and value that we get by being loved by God. Lifting ourselves up above others is not the secret to contentment. Bringing rivals down to where we are is not the secret to contentment. Contentment is found when we stop striving and earning God's love and see that God's love is sufficient for us, no matter our past, our mistakes, or our lackings in life. It is, um, second thing that we do with envy is this, is it is a choice that we can make to rejoice with people, that we choose to rejoice with people. And I say it's a choice because we don't have to always go with our first thought. We can choose to rejoice with people. It was in junior high that I made this choice after hearing a story, my, my Dad had this tape series by Tony Kimpole called The Seven Deadly Sins, and I listened to them all the time. And Tony Campolo, in his sermon on envy, his talk on envy, he talks about a friend of his who told him a story about a student in high school. And his friend told him about this boy in high school on graduation day. And at graduation day, they were giving out awards, the science award, the math award, the English award. And one day he noticed noticed one boy wasn't going to get any awards. But any time one of the students got up, this boy's face would light up and he seemed to be so happy that his friend, that his classmate received one of the prizes. He was just basking in the achievements of other students. He himself won nothing. And after the graduation was over, he seemed to be the only one who was really happy, completely happy. He radiated joy because his joy came in experiencing the success of others above the success of himself. If we always have to be the number one, the best, then we are always going to be unhappy. And what this little story told me or shared with me is that I can be intentional about celebrating the successes of my friends every day of my life. I can be truly happy when someone around me does well so that I'm not eaten up by envy. So in the years when we didn't own a home and I'd leave a house of somebody and I really liked that house, I would, to battle against envy, I'd just say, God, I am so thankful that you blessed this family with a great home. When a friend or colleague achieved something that I wanted to achieve and they did it first, I would send a note of celebration and congratulate them. When someone had achieved more than me, I'd often want to find ways to celebrate that. If you're going to do away with envy in your life, you cannot be afraid to celebrate the achievements of others. And in church life, this is critical. In our world today, imagine the witness of a group of people who made the conscious decision to fight against the envy of others by celebrating the accomplishments and the gifts of others. 
that we see this in the story of David and Saul and Jonathan. You know, the rightful throne to Israel was Jonathan. And it went to David instead. And this is what Jonathan said. He says, you will be king and I will be second. I will serve you. I will rejoice with you. I will have your back. You have what is truly mine. You became king when I should have been king. It's what I wanted. And then he says this, but God had something else. And Jonathan says, I celebrate with you. It's the first step. Second step is we need to learn to rejoice in God's goodness in other people's lives. Third thing that we can do with envy is this is if envy is resenting God's goodness in another person's life and ignoring God's goodness in our own lives, we have to look at the way that God has been good in our life. Jesus tells a parable of the talents, where one man gets 10 and doubled it to 20, and one man gets five and invested it and doubled it. And then the one man got one, and he buried it in the ground. And I wonder if the man that got one looked at it and said, gosh, that man with 10 talents, he's got nine more advantages in life than I do. And then he looked at the one with five and said, oh, that one with five talents, he has four more advantages in life than I do. And the parable is truthful about this, that that there will always be people around you who have advantages over you, that they may be smarter They may be more athletic. They may have a bit more charisma. They may have been born in a place. They may have been born in, in a location that just because of our world gives them an advantage over you. Where there's injustice, where that happens, we need to fight against that. For all of us here, we may feel like the one with 10 or we may feel like the person with one. And if we only have one, we still have the choice to do something, even with our limited advantage. There is no guarantee going into the parable that the man with one talent was going to end up with less than the man with 10 talents. People with lesser advantages in life are always surpassing those with greater advantages. Bob Sorg, he says it this way. He says, it's always tempting to think a certain group or person is holding us back, but nothing can deter us from pursuing the glorious love of Christ. Even if we think we only have one talent, there's nothing in the universe that can keep us from pursuing the love of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Where there are injustices due to gender or race or color or ethnicity, as followers of Jesus, those matter and we need to be a voice of goodness and love. But envy will not give you nine more talents. Envy will only distract you from who God made you to be. Envy will not give you four more talents. Envy will only distract you from the power, the abilities, and the uniqueness that God gave you. Envy will not make you more talented. The more envious you are will not make you a better singer. The more envious you are will not make you better looking. The more envious you are will not give you greater charisma. It may feel like that because we're constantly lowering those around you. But here's what envy will do. It will keep you from discovering the person that God made you to be. It'll get in the way of that from happening. 
And then lastly, the way that we deal with envy is to grow in gratitude. That Allie pointed this out in staff meeting. She said, it's interesting to see all these secular writers build into their daily habits now a time of gratitude. To list the things in life that they're thankful for. And God invites us to do this. To be thankful to God for strength and resources, even when they are limited. To be thankful for God for growth. To be thankful for God in the midst of hardships. Sometimes in our day, the only thing that we'll have to be thankful for is, God, thank you for just listening to me. Thank you for being one that I can pray to. Thank you for being there with an unconditional love for me. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you for your love, your unconditional and perfect love. Love does not envy. Envy will keep us from loving those around us. Love wants what is good for those around us. Love allows us to pursue the good of those around us. Let us pray. Lord, your scriptures are clear that envy can rot our lives to the bone. Envy steals our energy. Envy may get, helps us lose perspective. Envy causes us to not see the gifts that you have given us. And so, Lord, today where there is envy in our lives, may you bring it to the surface and may you begin to heal it. Lord, if there's even a seed today of being frustrated with the good gifts of somebody around us and wondering why them and not us, Lord, just bring a death to that seed right now so that sense of envy doesn't grow in us. And help us to do the disciplines of what it means to grow as a loving person and not an envious person. Lord, we pray that you will help us to love those around us. May our capacity to love increase every day. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.